be taken from John chapter 1 and from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that on this side of eternity we will ever fully grasp the meaning of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. But what we can understand, we must understand, because it's central to the Christian faith. And as we endeavor to share the gospel of Christ with the lost world, we must understand that it's not enough to merely demonstrate that Jesus actually lived in Palestine or to depict the world of the first century into which he was born or even to present him as the master teacher or the perfect example. Any consideration of the life of Christ must begin with the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the manifestation of God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. He is God becoming a man. He is God who, cre who by creation became the father of the human family. And when we chose alienation and loss of identity because of sin, he came to the world to save us and to complete his eternal purpose toward us, which was to give us a share of his glorious life eternal. This is the message of Scripture. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the greatest and most important truth ever told. A few moments ago, our attention was called to the reading of the Apostle, John, the Apostle John's declaration of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. A little boy alone in his room was trying to go to sleep, but he was afraid. So he shouted down from his bedroom, Dead, it's dark up here and I'm afraid. His father shouted back, Don't be afraid, son. God is with you. After a few seconds pause, the boy called down again and said, I know, Dad, but can you come up here anyway? I need to see someone with skin on. And you and I needed someone desperately. We needed someone to help us with our sin problem. 
We needed someone with skin on. And God sent his son, Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does this mean? What does it really mean? Well, it does not mean that God borrowed a fleshly body and used it for some 33 years. It does not mean that God became solely and only a human so that we have now a human substitute for one of the members of the Godhead. And it does not mean that he was a living mix of human cells and and divine substance. He was not a hybrid. It does not mean that the second person in the Godhead emptied himself of his Godhood, emptied himself of the attributes essential to deity. It doesn't mean any of that. Rather, it means that Jesus of Nazareth, the now glorified and exalted Jesus Christ, is God being a man. Is God choosing to be a man. And there was never a moment when Jesus was not God, fully God, being a man. Jesus is not one day God and then another day man. He's always God, always being a man. And he's not merely a wonderful man who exhibits the, the, the nature and character of God. He is God living in our space and time world. Consider the wonder of the incarnation of God. More than that, consider the implications of the fact that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a particular human who actually lived and walked on the earth. But he was more than that. He was the invisible God making himself visible. And in doing that, not just in saying that, but in doing that, in making himself visible, God's love for man was actually, historically, and physically demonstrated. In fact, our our salvation depends upon depends completely upon Jesus coming into the world in human form. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. His love was fully displayed in his taking on human form and allowing this form to be put to death as a sacrifice on our behalf. I think of the words of Paul. In Romans 4 and verse 25, he said, Jesus was delivered up for us and was raised. He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Notice the expression, raised for our justification. But his resurrection was possible only because he first became a man, first took upon human form and then died for us. So one implication of Jesus, of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, is that the invisible God made himself visible. In other words, Jesus as God incarnate 
gives us a better understanding of God, helps us to see more clearly who God is and what he is like. Perhaps you remember the words of Jesus in John 14, beginning at verse 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then in verse 7, he said, If you had known me, you would have known the Father. Henceforth, you will know him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 and verse 9. So Jesus gives us a better understanding of who God is. For example, we marvel at God's limitless power. But his power was shown in the man Jesus Christ. And think about what we learn about the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We learn that God's power is never manifested in isolation from his loving and redeeming purposes. His creative power, for example, as seen in multiplying the loaves and fish, uh, was exercised to feed a multitude and to demonstrate his, the fact that he was deity. His power as seen in raising the dead and casting out demons were expressions of his compassion upon mankind and also evidence of his deity. God is sovereign. All, he's the all-powerful God who spoke the world into existence. But the entire record of Jesus' earthly life shows that God's omnipotence is never isolated from his loving heart and his eternal purposes. I had a friend named Walter, Waldrop Johnson in Mobile, Alabama, when we lived there years ago. He was a gospel preacher, wonderful friend of mine. And I recall that on many occasions in his prayer, he would use, in his prayers, he would use the expression, God who is good in his greatness and great in his goodness. And that's true. Jesus gives us a clearer picture of who God is and of what he is like. In fact, if God is not being himself in the person of Jesus, then we don't know anything at all about God. John does not say the word loved mankind. John does not say the word redeemed mankind. John said the word became a man, became flesh, and dwelt among us. All the others true, of course. God did love mankind. He did redeem man in Jesus. But these truths and these truths are all expressed in the incarnation. Of God, But those are not as astounding as the truth that he actually became one of us. God became one of us, without sin, of course. He was, in every respect, tempted as we are, the Hebrew writer says, chapter 4 and verse 15, yet without sin. Some have suggested that God might have loved us, that God might have guided us, might have even redeemed us from a distance, or that he might have done it while among us, but without being one of us. But that's not true. God didn't choose to do it that way because he couldn't do it that way and still be God. 
I have no doubt that God wanted to be one of us. He wanted to redeem man through Jesus of Nazareth, for God so loved the world. But it is also true that he couldn't do it any other way. Do you think God would have allowed Christ to die on the cross if if there had been another way? Do you believe Christ's agony on the night of his betrayal was real? When he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. And when he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And when his sweat became as great drops of blood falling to the earth. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think when you read that, that there might have been another way? It was the only way God could be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 23. He said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he continues in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. It was the only way God could be God and justify sinful men. So God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a man. And he became a man not just to become the greatest teacher or the perfect example, but he became a man that he might redeem sinful men. Concerning the incarnation of Jesus, John Betjeman, an English poet, wrote these lines. And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, the maker of the stars and sea, became a child on earth for me? Well, it is true. But it isn't quite the whole truth. For the whole truth is that the maker of the stars and sea, in becoming a man, was uniquely qualified to be man's redeemer. You see, he wanted to come to earth. He wanted to become a man. Yes, he even wanted to go to the cross because he wanted to be man's savior. Matthew 11 and verse 19 records these words. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners. These critics insulted the incarnate God, but truer words were never spoken than when they accused him of being a friend of sinners. For he invites everyone to come to the Father through him. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Revelation 3. 
When one thinks of the God of the Bible, he might think of his infinite attributes, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his justice, his holiness. And he might think that God finds it hard to love us, to even be concerned about us. In fact, we often speak as if it's incredible that God loves us. And, it, and God's love is incredible. It's amazing, really. But it's not incredible that God loves us. That's who He is. That's what He does. But we think He's God. He's powerful and majestic above our imagining. And we are lowly sinners. And so we speak and write in a way that leaves the impression that God must have to work at it in order to love us, especially after what we did to His Son. But we forget what is taught in the Scriptures. For example, what is taught in Acts 2 and 23. One part of that verse says that Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men. That's true. But another part of that verse says that He was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, the death of Jesus was according to the eternal purpose of God. Paul said God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of, our, of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. When we believe Jesus Christ is God. When we really believe that Jesus Christ is God, then the depth and dimension of our faith, the power and the richness of our faith is expanded beyond measure. But finally, who was it that became incarnate? Let's look at this just a little bit more. The scripture the scriptures support the concept of the triune nature of God. Not that I understand that or understand how it could possibly be true. And I don't know of anyone else who does. But in the course of God's self-revelation, uh, the scriptures clearly speak of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the Son is spoken of as distinct from the Father and uh, distinct from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is spoken of as distinct from the Son and from the Father. And the Father is spoken of as distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit. And whatever it is that constitutes God as God, all three share. And together they constitute one true God. Not tritheism. There are not three gods, but three persons, if you will, in the Godhead. Distinguishable, but not divisible. And it is the Word who became flesh. It was not the Father, it was not the Spirit. It was the Word, the Son, who became flesh. But since the three are not divisible... Since there are not three gods but one, it follows 
that when the Word became flesh, the fullness of the Godhead became flesh. And that's exactly what the Bible says. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, For in Him, Paul said, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, we can be assured that what we see in Jesus of Nazareth is the self-disclosure of God. We've just finished celebrating the holiday we know as Christmas. And there's one important word that sums up what Christmas is most fundamentally about, or at least what it should be about. And that word is not Santa. It's not gifts. It's not eggnog. It's not even peace or goodwill. That one word is incarnation. A word that calls our attention to the fact that the eternal, immortal, invisible God has taken on flesh and entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And we should rejoice and praise God. We should worship Him, not just on December the 25th, but on every day of our lives. Because this amazing truth confirms that He loved us and sought us in the person of His Son, who did not count being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Is Christ your Savior? Or was His leaving heaven's glory coming to earth as a man and dying on the cross all in vain as far as you are concerned. His apostles were commissioned, and we by implication as well, commissioned to go and preach the message of glad tidings and to command the people saying, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. What is your relationship with God this morning? Are you in a right relationship with Him? Is your heart right with God this morning? Paul tells us in verses we've already read clearly how one can get in a right relationship with God. He said in Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus received by faith. I'm sure you all received gifts on Christmas Day or perhaps Christmas Eve. And some, no doubt, were very special to you because of who gave them to you. But as Mark has already suggested, you have never received a gift, neither have I, like the one God has given each and every one of us. He has given us the gift of salvation to be received through faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to the gospel. And I ask you this morning, have you accepted the gift of God's grace? Have you accepted Jesus Christ, salvation, the gift of His grace? You can't earn it, but it must be accepted on His terms. You see, His love for us is unconditional, but His salvation is not unconditional. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. How could you start the new year better than to become a child of God today if you're not His child already? Wouldn't you consider doing that this very day? Or perhaps you've obeyed the gospel earlier in your life, but like the prodigal son, you've wandered into a far country. God the Father has been looking for you He's been hoping you would return. And when you return to him and say, as did the prodigal son of Luke 15, Father, I've sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired servant. You can be assured that he won't do that. But what he will do is say, bring a robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And kill the fattened calf. And let's eat. And let's celebrate. Because my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Would you come this morning as we stand together and sing?